Today we're going to be diving into the book of Revelation again, and I'm so grateful to have been able to walk with you, both of those of you who have joined us live and those of you who have become part of our congregation by watching live stream. And again, I'm, I'm so grateful for the work of Dr. Jim Bradford and Dr. George Wood who have provided so much of my story, uh, study material through this, and, and I am grateful for that. For those of you that are watching on live stream today, I wanted you to know that at the end of the message, we are going to be having communion. And so if you're home and want to slip into your kitchen and grab some crackers and maybe some juice so that you can join us for communion, I know that this has been one year now, starting this week, one year that we have been in this season of restriction. I'm, I'm praying that it doesn't last much longer, but um, for those of you that may not have had communion for a while, I certainly want to invite you to prepare yourself with us. Father, as we get into Your Word today, we recognize that there are some topics that we would prefer not to talk about. When we think of the wrath of God, that certainly is one of them. And yet, Lord, You have given us Your Word in its entirety. And you ask that it be proclaimed so that we can have a full understanding of your grace and your mercy as well as your judgment and wrath upon sin. So, Lord, I pray today that you would just fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would touch each of our hearts, that what we proclaim today would be found on the foundation of the truth of your word and that it would allow us to be thoughtful in the way that we approach the nature of, of speaking to people about our God, and also, Lord, may it be instructive, I pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. For the past several weeks, I have gone through Revelation on a verse-by-verse, -verse, just kind of expositorily preaching on it, but I did not want to spend the next two weeks speaking about some of the most difficult language found in Scripture as it relates to the wrath of God. And so what I am doing today is I'm combining the 15th and the 16th chapter together and really approaching this in, in a textual way but also a topical way that I believe will fulfill the needs that we have in understanding what's taking place in Revelation, but also I believe that it will, it will bring us to a place where we can begin to move through some of this difficult wording and, and give to us a full understanding of what's happening there. I do want to encourage you, however, this week at some point to take some time and read these two chapters verse by verse so that you can get the full impact and digest the full impact of God's wrath on evil. Now, I know when I start this that we would prefer to talk about God's love for us. Believe me, I would much rather today stand here and preach about God's grace, His mercy, and His love for all of us. In fact, it's hard for many people to put the wrath of God and the love of God together. But I believe that these 15th and 16th chapters of Revelation is gonna do that for us. I believe we're gonna see that happen as we put them together. The doctrine of the wrath of God is difficult to teach in any generation. In today's world, however, it becomes even more so because the wrath of God upsets our modern sentiments. People say it's too disconcerting. It's too intolerant. It's too hard to comprehend. And so we live in a day where culturally what is happening as we have set ourselves up as the judge and God's character is on trial. And here's what that sounds like in our modern world with these questions. What does God have to be angry about? Or how can hell be just? 
Or why does God always seem so mean? Or if I'm not hurting anyone else, why should God care what I am doing? The fact that so many people are are struggling with these questions means that more than ever, right thinking and right teaching is needed about the doctrine of God's wrath. I believe that we need it, number one, as Christians, just in motivation for our living, not that Not that we need the motivation of of the wrath of God to do the right thing, but I want you to know that there are times and moments of decision that help us on the right path knowing that there are consequences for our decisions. I believe also that it's a fuel for proper worship. It is easy to raise my hand and praise God that he has risen from the dead and has saved me from my sins, and that begins to be, it fosters worship in my heart. But also today, I believe that you are going to need this as a toolbox to confront the objections to Christianity that we face today in our world. Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, about two commonly held views on the subject. One of them, a quote, is by a graduate student that says this, I doubt the existence of a judgmental God who requires blood to pacify his wrath. Someone had to die before the Christian God would pardon us. Why can't he just forgive? Another person responded as saying, I have an even greater problem with the doctrine of hell. The only God that is believable to me is a God of love. And in the eyes of many today, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, and the eternal punishment of sinners in hell is unthinkable, and it causes them to reject the God of the Bible. Now, we live, this is not going to surprise any of you, we live in an increasingly moralistic relative world. We insist on this, love me, but don't judge me, as our tolerance ethic, and it is rampant today. Even our top academic institutions in America have to create safe spaces for students so that they can be around people that will never disagree with them and never cause a negative feeling in their life. I mean, how does a culture that is so bought in to the love me but don't judge me ethic, how do they even find room for a God that shows his wrath? The second of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20 verse 4 states, You shall not make for yourself an idol. I believe that we have entered into a day and age where the very questions that are being asked indicates that idol worship starts with people creating a God after their own ideas. And here's what they say. God cannot be anything like what I have not already agreed upon. If it's not what I think God should be, then God cannot be that. That, my friends, is the very essence of idolatry. It is creating a theology, creating an image of God that may not be biblical and then having people build their entire life and belief system around an idol that they have created with their own hearts. And the Lord says in doing that, people have created a God of their own imagination and then they have given him a set of behaviors that he must abide by in order to be acceptable to them. 
One mistake that our culture makes in its thinking is that in this thought process of denying the wrath of God, we often think that that is new to this culture. Let me tell you something, it is not. In fact, let me show you where it began. Do you know what the first doctrine of Scripture that was challenged was? It tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God was having a conversation with Adam showing him a country-sized garden of all the things that he could eat and all the things that he had. He took him to the middle of the garden, and it tells us that God commanded him. The words commanded in there, but God, he said, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely die. The first doctrine denied in Scripture was challenged by Satan himself, which tells us that shortly after this conversation with God, Eve was created. Adam told her exactly what God says. She goes to the garden. She goes to that tree, and there's a serpent there. And the serpent begins to lay questions of doubt in her mind as to what did God really say. And she told him word for word what God had commanded. We are not to touch this tree, or we are not to eat of it or we will surely die, and Satan's first doctrinal attack recorded in Scripture is this. You will not surely die. The first doctrine Satan attacked, the first doctrine that Adam and Eve denied is the scriptural doctrine of of judgment, that there are consequences that come in disobeying God. It is a doctrine today that is most strongly denied in our world. And unapologetically, this is exactly where Romans 15 begins. It tells us in the first verse of Romans 15, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues. Last, because with them, God's wrath is completed. So there are going to be plagues. And they're going to be symbolically poured out of bowls. And the Greek word that is used for bowl here is not like a cereal bowl that is deep, but but almost like a plate that has some depth to it so that they are easily poured out and that everything in them could be poured out rather easily. They're wide and they're shallow kind of a bowl. And these bowls are filled with the wrath of God. And they're going to be empty before Jesus comes back to our world. And these plagues... These last judgments are the final expression of God's wrath because when they are done, God's wrath is complete. So as offensive as the idea of God's wrath may be to you, whether you are in this room or whether you are watching me on live stream, here's what I'm asking. Would you please give me a hearing today? Would you please just listen to what I have to say, because it's going to be like looking at two sides of a coin. It will be two overall things that I want you to focus your attention on today as we try to resolve how a loving God can also be a God of wrath. The first side of the coin is a proposition that I want you to invite you to think deeply about, not tritely, not like, well, if you love me, don't judge me, but I just want you to think what you are really saying if you believe this. Because the first point of the message is this. God cannot be good if he is not just. God cannot be good if he is not just. Now here's what I'm gonna do for you today. 
This message is going to be loaded with quotes of theologians and scholars. And so important is it for me to be able to put something in your hand in the toolbox of your ability to be able to have conversations with people that balk against the doctrine of wrath that I'm going to give you my entire message today. It is stapled in all my notes, and when you leave here today, you can reach out and grab it and take it with you and and have a chance to study it a little bit more and look at it. But there are printed copies of it on a table as you leave here today. But God cannot be good if he is not just. All of us have some sense of justice when we get treated improperly or when we see justice not evenly applied or fairly applied because justice is a passion in our heart. And you want to know how early this starts? For those of you that have more than one child, it starts when one child yells at the other, hey, that is not fair. That's where that sense of justice begins. But sometimes we want to take away the passion of justice from God and just make him a nice guy. A God who loves but never judges. But he could not be good if he is not just. Scholar N.T. Wright says this, If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at the child abuser, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, to bomb, to bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. Because God cannot be good if there is no sense of justice. Scholar Craig Keener says this, Santa Claus theology cannot cope with the reality of evil. If you take away the justice from God, you have Santa Claus. But Santa Claus theology does not hold up in the face of evil. Listen, how does a love me but don't judge me ethic ever be able to say to any perpetrator of domestic violence or anyone who has victimized women, that everything is okay, there has got to be consequences for you. Or how does a love me but don't judge me Santa Claus ever address the Mao or the Stalin or the Hitler who in the 20th century killed tens of millions of people in their quest to impose their ideology? How does a Santa Claus theology stand up to bullies who victimize children Sex traffickers who prey on the most vulnerable among us. Or the marriage partner who betrays their spouse with marital unfaithfulness. Or the corporate greed that rips off customers. Or the business partner who takes advantage of you behind your back and leaves you penniless. Or any other story that you and I may have personally lived that we hold within our hand. If God is a God that just sweeps all of that under the rug and says, eh, everything's going to be okay. How can he be good? I am glad I serve a God of justice. A God of, well, it's okay because I really don't judge anybody. I don't serve a God like that because if I did, it would make him impotent in the face of evil in our world. God's truth and his justice are at the heart of his nature. 
That's why before God's judgments are poured out, you see God's people in heaven in Revelation 15, 3, and they are singing a beautiful song, and it says this, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, and then we sing these words, just and true are your ways, king of the ages. Notice the words just and truth. The two words will always go together. This is the nature of God. And then as the seven bowls are being emptied as God's wrath is poured upon the earth in the next chapter, the angels are resounding to the song of the saints, the song that we have sang in chapter 16, verse 5, when it says this, you are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One. Goes on in verse 7 of chapter 16, yes, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your judgments. You see, if you take truth and justice away from God, you are left with little more than Santa Claus. And that Santa Claus theology will leave you powerless in explaining human suffering and the great problems of our world that people like to ask. Well, if God is so good, then why? And if that is your God, you have no answer. You also cannot take away from him his righteous anger. If you do, then you are left with a God that is indifferent and just cranky. And I have had people respond to me by saying this. Listen, it's not the justice of God that I have a problem with. It's the wrath of God that I stumble over. Becky Pippert states, God's wrath is not cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. You will never understand the heights of God's wrath until you understand the depths of his love for humanity, that he stamped his own image on when he created us, and he wants to bring us back into a relationship with himself. Yet evil is so decimating and destroying what he has created and marked with his own image that when his wrath comes, it won't be like he blew his top and lost his temper. Nope, it will be because it is his settled opposition to the cancer that is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves. Fleming Rutledge states this, all of us are capable about anger for something God's anger, however, is pure. It does not have the maintenance of privilege as its object, but goes out on behalf of those who have no privileges. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God had temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and is coming to set matters right. God's wrath is the passion in his heart to set injustice right and to finally deal with the reality of evil. James Packer summarizes it this way. Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. And not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. He goes on to say, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritably, uh, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to a, the objective of moral evil. 
Folks, God's wrath is His love in action against evil. And some of you are going, that makes no sense to me. I know it's counterintuitive, but hear me out. God is love. And because He's God of love, He also has told us that everything He does is to exalt His glory. He will not share His glory with any of us. He loves His glory above all, and that's a good thing because... Therefore, when he rules the world in such a way that brings maximum glory to himself, it means that he has to deal with that which has been trying to steal his glory. That means that God acts justly and judges sin. Otherwise, God would not be God. His love for truth and justice motivates his wrath against evil. And then theologian Daryl Johnson says this, the bowls, judgments are the natural automatic reflux of holiness. It is his holy response to everything that is unholy and is so victimizing of the human race that he created. And so that's why in Revelation chapter 15, as it comes to an end, there is a picture of a temple in heaven that is filled with the glory of God just before the descriptions of the pouring out of his wrath. And it says this in verse 8, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Did you know God's glory produces a smoke? We may not have seen it. I've been in places where I have felt the glory of the Lord. In fact, as we were worshiping today, I could sense the glory of the Lord. But we haven't seen anything yet. And it said that it was coming from the glory of God and from his power. And nobody could enter the temple until the seven plagues of seven angels were completed. What a prelude that we are given in Scripture before the final outpouring of his judgment. That out of his truth and justice and out of his holiness and righteousness comes this wrath that is against all evil and everyone that goes evil's way. So we are saying that if that wasn't true about God, if he wasn't a God of justice and he was indifferent toward evil, how could he be good? Because without justice, how could he ever be right? God cannot be good if he is not just. But here's the other side to that coin as we get into the 16th chapter. God's mercy always precedes his judgment. God's mercy always precedes his judgments. God wouldn't be good if he's not just, but before he brings his judgments, he always, first of all, shows up in his mercy. And so the pouring out of these seven bowls, which completes God's wrath against evil in our world, and it starts in verse 2, and it tells us that the first angel went, and he poured out his bowl upon the land, and ugly and painful or festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Clearly, this was not the wrath of God poured out upon his people. It's poured out upon the evil, those who had taken the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast or the mark of the Antichrist, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, does not belong to the believers. It belongs to those who have followed the beast. In other words, this is being poured out on everything that wants to victimize people, everything that wants to murder people, everything that wants to wreak havoc and rip your life apart, everything that wants to destroy your life and to destroy your marriage, everything that wants to destroy God's created image in you and your identity, everything that wants to destroy your well-being. Satan wants to kill you, Steal from you and destroy from you. And you want to know why? It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with how can he get back at a God who loves you. 
You're just a toy in his hand. He's just using you. And we saw last week that the people who had chosen to worship the beast, they had pledged their allegiance to the beast. They specifically chose the Antichrist over the real Christ. And now the wrath of God, which is his response to evil from his nature, is being poured out upon those who go Satan's way over Jesus' way. As we look at these seven bowls, as the wrath of God is being poured out, you will notice as you read those this week that they are going to parallel the seven trumpet judgments that we had learned about earlier. In fact, let me begin to list these. The bowl judgments that are being poured out, the first one is God's wrath that is being poured out on the land, causing painful sores. The second bowl is His judgment upon the sea and everything in it dies. The third bowl is upon all the fresh water and they become as blood. The fourth bowl was on the sun that caused people to be scorched with intense heat and fire. For those who have given themselves to the mark of the beast, this is the beginning of the dismantling of the created order at the end of time. Revelation 16.9 says this, they were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. I had a non-Christian say to me, you know, I would, I would probably change my mind about God if he would just do something miraculous. If he would just kind of show up in a supernatural way, like writing something in heaven that we know that man couldn't manipulate. You know, if he would just, if he would just do something that made me understand that he is real and undeniable, then, then I would serve him. How many people have you heard say that? The honest truth is not usually. Not usually. In fact, the person that I have seen God do the greatest physical miracle in after God had given them back life walked away from the Lord. The greatest miracle I've ever seen. Because when you have given yourself to the mark of Satan, when you've given yourself to the influence of Satan time and time and time again, when you've been brought to those points of decision in your life, such as you may be either in the service or maybe sitting in your living room, and you know that the Spirit is knocking on the door of your heart and you refuse, you begin to grow calluses over your heart. You begin to get to that place where you, you no longer are as easily moved by the Holy Spirit as you were earlier. Your sensitivity to the things of God begins to die to the point that even miracles won't change your mind. The fifth bowl that was poured out upon the throne of the beast is, is upon his kingdom, and it's plunged into darkness, and basically it sets the remainder of humanity into absolute confusion. It tells us at the end of verse 10 and verse 11, men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. You see, the problem that God understands and that we desperately need to understand is that we ultimately become what we worship. Evil comes, and it, and it turns us to face toward it. And oftentimes, it is reflected in, in words that, that say, you know what? I really don't believe it's that bad. Or... This was just innocent, or it was an innocuous, and, and, 
Or maybe it's, I just don't like church, or I don't go to church, or church seems boring to me. And, and so you begin to dismiss the things where the Lord could begin to influence your life. Or some people just said, you know, I, did, I just don't particularly believe in God, but I am a good person. And I do good things, and I treat other people nicely. I try to be nice. And what we do in that is that we try to whitewash it while the enemy is pulling us toward his mark, pulling us toward his influence, pulling us away from the power of the Lord that would draw us to himself. And what happens in this, and please, those of you that are watching, listen closely. You are leaving yourself defenseless against the very system of the world that will start to mark you and train you and influence your thinking. And we will actually become what we worship. And when I talk about worship, I need you to know that I'm not talking about singing songs with Christian lyrics. It's way beyond that. What I am talking about in a life of worship is a life that is lived in study and obedience to the Word of God. It is a life that says, I am sold out for you, Lord. I'm not walking the fence. I'm not trying to live in both places. I am following you completely. And the punishment poured out on those who, in spite of the absolute evidence of his existence and the reality of the power of God, they will still be stubborn and rebellious in their spirit because they have yielded so many times to the influence of the enemy that even miracles won't change their mind. So if we become what we worship, then we have no greater need than to become right with God today. And this is where the mercy comes in. We've been saying that God could not be good unless he's just. But we are also saying that God's mercy will always precede his judgment. So I want to show you, as we have come this far in Revelation, I want us to take a peek backwards because as you do so, you're going to see the fingerprints of God's mercy all over this. Because the whole book of Revelation is structured to talk about God's mercy to us. Here's the map. When you got to chapter 6 and 7, we talked about the seven seals that were broken. Remember when the angel cried out, here's the lion of the tribe of Judah. John turns around and he sees a lamb that was slain. And the lamb walks up and takes the, the seven seals, the scroll after anybody's crying because they couldn't find it. And he takes it and he begins to open those. In the seven seals we read in, in chapter 6 and 7, talks about the breaking of those. And there was a certain level of judgment that came with that. Following that, there were, in chapters 8 through 11, the seven trumpet judgments. And, and we looked at those, and in those seven scenes, it, it kind of circled back to where the world ends again. But even in those, as we look at it closely, we're going to see the mercy of God. And then there's this break, and we have been in these seven scenes that take place since then. Scenes that started with the, the Christmas story and the conflict between the Savior being born in the world. And then there was a the story of the dragon and the Antichrist, the false prophet, the mark of the beast. And so now we're set up for these seven bold judgments. But here's what we noticed as we look back at Revelation. Have you noticed how many times there were fractions involved in the judgment of God? Maybe you, you didn't catch it, but let me just bring it to your thinking. Even as God's wrath was starting to be poured out, it was done in fractional incrimination, in implementation, and even in that, it cried out his mercy. It started out with this, one quarter of the earth, one quarter of the, uh, of the things that took place there. And in that, God's pouring out his judgment and also at the very same time indicating, I didn't wipe you all out. 
It was my mercy that gave you another opportunity. And then from there it goes to the next ones, the seven trumpets, and it talks about in that one-third of the earth was touched, and, and the fractions are there. Every time you see a fraction, it is a sign of the mercy of God who's saying to you, I want you to have another chance. And now we get to chapter 16, and there are no more fractions because this is it. The sixth bowl goes out to talk about the battle of Armageddon, which is the nations that gather against the Lord, and there's actually no description of a battle, but the nations gather to do battle in the valley of Armageddon, and this is where Jesus is going to step in. But the seventh bowl, the final bowl, is poured into the air. This is significant, and here's why. Throughout Scripture, Satan has been assigned a title that he is the prince of the power of the air. So in God's final act of wrath, he wants to remind Satan, you never had a kingdom anyway. You never had a kingdom anyway. It's the final humiliation and the downfall of evil's kingdom. And it tells us in verse 17 of chapter 16, and the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. We look at it and say, what is done? God's wrath against evil, God's dealing with the evil, the expression of God balancing the scales of justice. So he doesn't just sweep injustice and victimization under the rug, but here it is done. He comes that the righteous will have our moment. And he finishes it up. Now, here, it's really interesting to me. John, by now, is an old man, well into his 90s, but I can't help but think that as he is recording what he sees and what he hears, that his mind doesn't go back to an earlier scene when he was a, a young apostle. Because there are four gospels that are recorded for us in, in Scripture. John wrote one of those. But John is the only gospel that records... Jesus' words from the cross when he said this, when he had received the drink, that remember they were lifting vinegar to his lips when he was thirsty, and another sign of to humiliate him. When he tasted that, he turned his head, and it says, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. And we look and say, what was finished? Everything needed to pay the price for us to experience God's mercy was finished. Jesus paid for our mercy. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. Jesus paid the price of mercy before pouring out his judgment. And so we're caught in this dilemma, and worship team, if you please come, we're caught in this dilemma. How do we resolve the fact that Jesus says to us, come, come to me, all you who are willing? Come, come to me, versus the fact that as we approach him, that we recognize that he is a holy God and that we cannot come into his presence in our present condition. How do, we, how do we resolve that? I want you to know today that the cross of Jesus Christ resolves that. When he spread his arms out, it was God resolving the great issue of the justice of God and it also resolved the issue of the holiness of God that keeps us away. He resolved it so that we can experience his love and not have to experience his wrath. This is John's reminder 
that Jesus paid the price for mercy before pouring out his judgment. In fact, if you think about it, just think about this. Mercy would be meaningless if there were no judgment. Why would we need Jesus? Why would I need a Savior if there was nothing that he had to save me from? So God's judgment to us becomes our warning sign. The British evangelist Tycho Tice says, many of the words about hell found in the Bible are straight from the lips of Jesus. And they're a loving warning to us. The reason Jesus talked about hell is because he does not want people to go there. The reason Jesus died was so that people wouldn't have to go there. And the only way anybody can go to hell is to trample right over the cross of Jesus. It was the cross that satisfied the issues of God's justice so that we could enjoy his mercy. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me and we're going to sing a song in preparation for our time of communion together. And again, for those of you that are at home that want to join us, please grab something that you can use as elements as we prepare our hearts to sing. There are two bowls that are poured out in verses 8 through 11. 
The fourth bowl, which is poured out on the sun, the fifth is poured out on the throne of the beast. And there, there is an incredible implication in what happens here. The response of those that are being judged is this. It said, and they cursed the name of God, but refused to repent and glorify him. As, as the fifth bowl is being poured out, it says this, and they cursed the God of heaven, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Here's the implication, and this, folks, this is, this is a sobering implication. These people who are under the wrath of God are not people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. These are people who've heard the Christian message. These are people that believed in the existence of God because they were recognizing where this all came from. These are people that had been warned about the judgment of God. These, these are not judgments that are being poured out on the atheists only. These are people who know that the God of the gospel had given them an opportunity and they had hardened their heart as Pharaoh did. And then they willfully, in response to knowing where this came from, curse God. In fact, a literal interpretation of that might be that they are screaming out, let God be damned! They may be people who just wanted a loving God who wouldn't judge them. Or they may be people who sat in churches who just thought God would let everybody in. C.S. Lewis made a statement, and I'm going to paraphrase it. He said, I would pay any price to say truthfully that all will be saved. We must remember the Lord not only said it, but he paid the price that all might be saved. He said, my reason retorts, all will be saved with their will or without it. If I say they will be saved without their will, I at once perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme act of self-surrender that each one makes when they receive Christ as their Savior become involuntary at the end of a life? If I say that a person could be saved without their will, then how can salvation which is designed to be accepted by one's will be done involuntarily or automatically? How can they be saved if they won't give in? So communion today is about your will. Revelation 16 is about your will. The judgments are about your will. And for all of you that are here in this church and those of you that are listening online today, if that time comes and you have yielded yourself to the influence of Satan rather than the influence of God, you'll know exactly what's happening. I firmly believe that this church is going to be packed, packed, minutes after the rapture takes place. Of people that will sat in services just like this and know exactly what happened. So I'm going to ask that you would take your communion cups. And if you push the flap down first, it will release that little membrane so that you can get to the wafer on top. The Bible tells us that before we do this, that we need to take a moment and examine ourselves. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want every one of you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your head. 
Because as you're examining yourself, it may be that you have created a God in an image that you are willing to follow, but it's not the God of the Bible. And today he's knocking on the door of your heart and saying, listen, don't you, don't you feel as if you can tell me what I can and cannot do? Because those that worship me will follow my word and obey it. And I know that that's a hard message today in a culture that says, love me, but don't judge me. That we cannot serve a good God if he's not a God of justice.